Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to Starship Sova's show number 386. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Yes, little stuttering in the voice there. Tripped up already. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, we have a looking back at genre history with our very own Miss Amy H. Sturgis. Then the main fiction is Stone to Stone, Blood to Blood by Gwendolyn Clare, which was published in Asimov's. There you go. That's all coming in today's show. So I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, before we get into anything, remember last week when I said, a little story, when I said, oh, just recording this and then we're off to Italy, off to Rome, bit of culture for the, the, the northeast there is going to witness a bit of culture. Didn't happen. <laughs> oh, man. Went to the airport, got all sorted out, everything like that. Got the bags through customs, sat in the duty-free and proceeded to get blindly drunk. Yes, we all did. Do you know what I mean? Well, not blindly drunk, but you know what I mean? Kind of started. First couple would take the edge off flight, you know what I mean? Which is, is normal, you know what I mean? And then kind of it, it came up, what? Well, slight delay. This is on the kind of the board. Oh, right, right, right. I'm going to get another one, you know what I mean, kind of. And then another delay, and then it just said nothing, you know. And, and like these delays are saying, you know, like 20 minutes kind of delay. And then it got to about an hour later, which is not that kind of bad in terms of flight delays. You know, you kind of hear these hideous things where they've been delayed 24 hours and that, and you're stuck in an airport. So we were still kind of having a good time, you know what I mean? We were kind of, but by this time, you know what I mean? I think I'd sub, I think, four bloody pints or something like that. And then I was saying, they were, well, we might as well have, you know, it's too much to have, kind of, we might as well have a few whiskeys. You know, Mrs. Me and Darren, my friend, because we went, there's two couples went, you know, our best friends went with her as well. So the girls went off to kind of, because it was by now, I think we're about an hour and a half into kind of delayed. And it was just, might as well go to check in and find out what's happening. Well, they came back, and I'm not joking, we were kind of sitting in this cafe, all kind of still pumped up, you know, in my holiday mood. And they just came back and said, it's cancelled. Flight's cancelled. And we still didn't kind of get it. And it was like, oh, all right, well, I know it's cancelled now. When, you know, how long we've got to wait? And it was, she, you know, the girls, kind of my wife, Melanie, and our friend Maureen, no, no, it, it's cancelled. That's it. There is no more flight. There's not a flight today. There's not a flight until next Thursday, I think it was. Something ridiculous like that. And it was hard to kind of get it into your kind of head that, you know, Jet 2, this is who we went with, it just kind of cancelled it. And here, when it all came out, There'd been a kind of major fire in Rome Airport. And I, I mean, it burned down a terminal. That's how big it was. And But at the time, it was just like, oh. And it's funny. Normally, when we kind of go on these little kind of 
flits away, you know, we kind of do it ourselves and we book the flight and then we book the hotel by ours, you know what I mean? But this time we did it all through Jet 2. So within a day, you know, the kind of the all monies was back in the accounts, do you know what I mean? And apparently... The girls were saying, you know, it's it's totally out of our hand. This is kind of, you know, for safety reasons. And she says they don't just come, doesn't um, um, doesn't cancel the kind of flights that are, you know, the last time was the ash cloud, you know, so it was a kind of one-off, you know, thing. And then when you've seen the pictures of the Roma airport, you know, and then we're hearing stories about the chaos in Rome, you know, the train stations were gridlocked, the airports, you know, the other airport that was just kind of, it was just hideous, you know, traffic jams all over, and that would have been the whole weekend, you know, so, I mean, we were gutted, but there's nothing we could do, do you know what I mean, so we're kind of now trying to, you know, do it again next year, do you know what I mean, it's just like, oh man, you don't get that many years in your life anyways, you know what I mean, just kind of, oh, we'll do it next year sort of thing, so yes, didn't get, we ended up going to York for the for the night, you know, we kind of just, by that time, you know, like you see, we were so popped up, we couldn't, we drove up to the airport, left the car in the kind of, one of these kind of long steer car parks, we couldn't get the car because we couldn't drink, we couldn't drive, so we just got the train back into Newcastle and jumped on another train to York for the night, but it was... I mean, we've been around York so many times, it was just like shopping in Newcastle, do you know what I mean? And it's just kind of a bit flat and it was cold, you know what I mean? We didn't have the proper clothes and oh, we were just glad to get home, to be quite honest. But there you go, there's my woes. I just needed to kind of offload them, do you know what I mean? So we didn't get to bloody Rome, didn't see the Colosseum or anything like that. So never mind. So don't forget, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technologies. 20 years serving the IT industry. How just fabulous is that? A big thank you to Clive and Diane for sponsoring the show. And for everyone who sponsors, kind of who sponsored SofaCon as well. Thank you so much. So we'll get on. Looking back at genre history, this is part three of three of Amy's little talk. Ames! Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. In my last two segments, I've been discussing Mary Wollstonecraft and her thought and its influence on her daughter, Mary Shelley. And in today's segment, I would like to focus in particular on Mary Shelley's two great works of science fiction, her novels Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus and The Last Man. When we last left off, I was discussing how Mary Shelley flipped the prescription for the Gothic explained in Frankenstein. In other words, she put the explanation first and the fantastic content second. And by putting the explanation first, she was playing to the rationality of her reader, something that her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, who argued for women's rights and particularly the responsibility of educating women so that they could exercise their rights and enjoy their potential as rational, independent minds. She would have appreciated Mary Shelley's choice to play to the rational in her reader tremendously. The original 1818 publication of Frankenstein included this early explanation, but she went into further detail in the introduction to the 1831 edition of Frankenstein. Mary Shelley wrote, 
Many and long were the conversations between Lord Byron and Shelley, to which I was a devout but nearly silent listener. During one of these, various philosophical doctrines were discussed, and among others, the nature of the principle of life, and whether there was any probability of its ever being discovered and communicated. They talked of the experiments of Dr. Darwin. That is, by the way, not Charles Darwin, but his grandfather, Erasmus Darwin. I speak not of what the doctor really did or said that he did, but as more to my purpose of what was then spoken of as having been done by him, who preserved a piece of vermicelli in a glass case till by some extraordinary means it began to move with voluntary motion. Not thus, after all, would life be given. Perhaps a corpse would be reanimated. Galvanism had given token of such things. Perhaps the component parts of a creature might be manufactured, brought together. And endured with vital warmth. In other words, science tells us that it might be possible. In fact, Darwin believed in a kind of spontaneous generation. Rainwater left alone in the gutter for a few days develops a wheel animal. He saw it could survive for periods in a dry state, but only shows life in the water. He also wrote accounts of small creatures appearing to come to life spontaneously out of dead matter. And certainly, both of these ideas seemed at work in Mary's novel, which brings us to the big ideas behind Frankenstein, which I would say are tied, in some sense, to Mary Wollstonecraft's interest in education and rights and responsibilities. For one thing, Frankenstein is not the anti-science work that many people try to make it, with terms like Franken foods and such, saying, "Ah, here is the creator playing God, going where the intellect should not go." That's much more tied to the 1931 James Whale film adaptation than to the novel originally in its own right. In the novel, Mary Shelley makes it plain: it's not the science; it's the scientist. The science is neutral, or you might say it's solid. First of all, it works, so it's solid science,、uh, and it would have proven repeatable, we presume, if Victor had completed the bride. Remember, Mary Shelley, as a child of the Enlightenment, is pro-science. She admires Frankenstein's genius, his thirst, his dedication, his seeking for knowledge. Maybe not his ambition in a kind of male sense, because after all, he's trying to reproduce without a woman. But she does appreciate what he's trying to do, and she's particularly sympathetic to his goal of solving the problem of death. By the time she's writing Frankenstein, she has lost her mother, her half sister, her lover's wife, and an infant, and she feels great guilt and loss over all of these. She's also eventually going to lose her baby son, William, the namesake of the William child who was killed in Frankenstein. She wants death conquered. It's clear that had Victor behaved differently, if he had recognized his responsibilities toward the creature or child that he's brought into existence, we would have seen a different creature. As the creature tells us, I seek not a fellow feeling in my misery. No sympathy may I ever find. When I first sought it, it was the love of virtue, the feelings of happiness and affection with which my whole being overflowed, that I wished to be participated. But now that virtue has become to me a shadow, and that happiness and affection are turned into bitter and loathing despair, in what should I seek for sympathy? 
Now, why is the creature first feeling love of virtue and feelings of happiness and affection? His first education, he to Wollstonecraft's thought there, his first education was quite tremendous with uh, the de Lacy's looking in on the books that they read. He learned language. He learned history. He learned uh, a tremendous amount from those works and from the kindness of the blind old man. Ultimately, this isn't a story of science gone wrong. It's the story of a scientist shirking his responsibility. Victor has a responsibility to what he has created, and he abandons it and reaps the consequences. Who is the monster in Mary Shelley's work? Uh, In a way, it's Victor himself. He abandons the life he made, this life that uh, has rights, this life that creates a responsibility on uh, Victor's shoulders. Victor Frankenstein, too, is irrational. And remember that rationality was very important both to Wollstonecraft and her daughter. The creature is the rational one. Victor says the different accidents of life are not so changeable as the feelings of human nature. I had worked hard for nearly two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate body. For this, I had deprived myself of rest and health. I had desired it with an ardor that far exceeded moderation. But now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished, and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. In a way here, Victor is being carried along by his emotions in the same way as the heroines of the novels of sentimentalism that Mary Wollstonecraft criticized. These characters aren't using their brain. Well, neither here is Victor Frankenstein. Contrast this with the creature who says, You are in the wrong, and instead of threatening, I am content to reason with you. You, my creator, would tear me to pieces and triumph. Let me see that I excite the sympathy of some existing thing. The creature is far more articulate and far more reasonable than his creator, and that's uh, a tragedy, ultimately. The creature shows every sign of reason, down to the ability to enter into the social contract. Uh, He exchanges chores, for example, for de Lacey and de Lacey's family, in return for the information and education that he receives from the DeLacy's. For that matter, the monster is, in a sense, us, humanity, drawing on that tremendous education that her mother made possible for her. Mary Shelley bases much of Frankenstein on Milton's Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost, a Christian story about the fall of Satan and uh, the creation of Adam, one would think in a Christian story that God would be the hero, and ostensibly God is the hero, but ultimately when you read Paradise Lost, you have much more sympathy for Satan, and especially Adam, Adam who is, in a sense, exiled and abandoned. And in a way, the creature Frankenstein makes is in the same boat. Did we ask to be born? Did we seek our own fall? Uh, The opening lines there of Frankenstein underscore this. From Milton, the epigraph is, Did I request thee, maker, from my clay to mold me man? Did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? In other words, did I ask to be born? And now that I'm here, where are you? 
in a sense, God is, like Victor Frankenstein, the deadbeat dad. And this all ties into how Mary Shelley was deeply influenced by Mary Wollstonecraft's notion of the responsibility of parents toward their children, how children are in some sense a blank slate and that education can mold them and miseducation can misshape them. And, of course, that rationality is a central value and that it trumps emotionalism and sentimentality. I see even more resonance between Mary Wollstonecraft's thought and Mary Shelley's writing in Mary Shelley's novel, The Last Man, which is set at the end of the 21st century in a time of airships, in a time of futuristic technology, but in a time of human nature, very much identifiable as our own. This was published in 1826, and by this point, Mary Shelley really was the last person standing from her circle. Dr. Polidori had committed suicide. Percy Shelley had drowned. Lord Byron had died fighting for Greek independence. And as much as she had admired and appreciated these men, she did see that she was pretty much the one left cleaning up the mess that they had left. They had lived a life of grand ideas and grand passions, but they had also notably failed to take responsibility for the repercussions of their actions. A key example here is Lord Byron's treatment of his illegitimate child with Mary Shelley's stepsister. Uh, the stepsister very much wanted to keep the child and raise the child, but as a teenage girl on her own, she could not afford to do this. And Byron honestly couldn't be bothered. So he took his daughter Allegra and shut her away in a convent where, still as a quite little girl, she died. Mary Shelley was also noticing how her father, who claimed to embrace the same ideas that her late mother had and wrote a great deal about individual freedom, also really didn't take responsibility for his actions. He would constantly write to pretty much everyone he knew, asking for money all the time. And as Mary Shelley was following in her mother's footsteps and earning her living by her pen, she got to thinking about how perhaps that romantic circle hadn't been so much about liberty or libertarianism as libertinism. That is, they were very keen on all the rights that Mary Wollstonecraft wrote about. But they weren't very keen on the responsibilities that she suggested were the flip side of the coin of rights. If you wanted to have freedom, you also had to take responsibility for your actions. And in a way, The Last Man is a kind of fictional exploration of that idea. Mary Shelley did not, like her mother, write political tracts and essays. Uh, her politics came through in the metaphors of her fiction. The Last Man is a work of fiction, a work of science fiction, but it's also remarkably autobiographical. The more you know about the romantic circle in which Mary Shelley moved, the more you'll recognize the characters, like Adrian, Earl of Windsor, who is very clearly Percy Shelley, and Lord Raymond, who is very clearly Lord Byron. And there's Lionel Verne, the last man of the title, who is Mary herself, the one left to pick up the pieces and mourn. 
Now, The Last Man is a story about a pandemic, and it follows, in good science fiction fashion, all the science that was known at the time, the cutting-edge stuff about how pandemics worked. The contagion spreads across the globe until ultimately there is only one person left, the one who represents Mary Shelley. But, of course, the message isn't about the contagion. Otherwise, the takeaway would be, don't get sick. Actually, the message is about taking responsibility, the failure of political ideas when no one will take responsibility. Institutions fail. The country, the world, isn't up to dealing with this contagion. The government, the church, the community, even the family ultimately fall apart. The center cannot hold. And being of a particularly bleak and dystopian bent myself, I've got to say The Last Man is one of my favorite works. It's quite, quite powerful. But of course, Shelley didn't really die the way he died in the novel and the way he died in real life by drowning because Mary Shelley was also a tremendous editor. She is the one responsible for giving us his complete poetical works as we know them today. She also wrote many other things that are worth noting. I'll just mention one, although all of them are worth discussing. That's Perkin Warbeck, which was published in 1830, a historical novel that offers the women's side of the story, the women's tale that is uh, counter to the masculine power politics that destroy, ultimately, the male characters. I think about how, for example, um, in very recently, The White Queen, the television adaptation of the novel by Philippa Gregory, was touted as such a remarkable achievement because here is a more inclusive story. Here is restoring voices that were lost um, from the historical record. And it struck me, well, Mary Shelley was doing that almost 200 years earlier. Like her mother, her literary light ultimately was downplayed, in this case because of a biography written by her daughter-in-law. Her daughter-in-law realized that Mary Shelley had led quite an unconventional life. Her love life, her professional life, um, the fact that she was an independent woman who ultimately earned her living from her own wits and her own writing, and Mary Shelley's very well-intentioned uh, daughter-in-law, who loved her quite a lot, tried to reframe her as a proper, quiet, pious Victorian woman. And that has lasted, that vision of Mary Shelley as essentially just being part of Percy Shelley and behind Percy Shelley has lasted for a long time. But it's time now to put that aside and recognize that she was as pioneering and remarkable as her mother. In fact, that's a good ending note. Let me end with the words of Charlotte Gordon, the author of 2015's Romantic Outlaws, The Extraordinary Lives of Mary Wollstonecraft and Her Daughter, Mary Shelley. Without knowing the history of the era, the difficulties Wollstonecraft and Shelley faced are largely invisible, their bravery incomprehensible. Even those who revere mother and daughter do not fully realize how profoundly they challenged the moral code of the day. Yet both women were what Wollstonecraft termed outlaws. 
Not only did they write world-changing books, they broke from the strictures that governed women's conduct, not once, but time and again. Their refusal to bow down, to be quiet and subservient, to apologize and hide, makes their lives as memorable as the words they left behind. They asserted their right to determine their own destinies, starting a revolution that has yet to end. End quote. And with that, I will leave you. Thank you for your time and attention. I hope you've enjoyed this three-part look at Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley. I look forward to joining you again very soon with another look back into genre history. Thank you. There you go, Amy. Thank you so much. Need to cry on your shoulder, here. Go be holidays, <laughs> Amy. Thank you so much. So the main fiction, like I say, it is Stone to Stone, Blood to Blood by Gwendolyn Clare, which was originally published in Asimov's. Gwendolyn resides in North Carolina, where she tends a vegetable garden and a flock of backyard ducks, and wonders why she ever lived in the frozen Northlands. She has a PhD in mycology, which is useful for identifying wild mushrooms, but nothing much else. Her short fiction has appeared in Asimov's Clark World and Beneath Ceaseless Skies, among other. You can find her at GwendolynClaire.com. Story is narrated by Jonathan Sharp. Jonathan was born in southern New Mexico in the nexus between Area 51, Trinity Site and Spaceport America. He attended the culinary school in Portland, Oregon and have managed and has managed a number of restaurants, cafes and bakeries. By day, he is a producer of a natural grocery store, produce manager, should I say. And by night, he practices narration and voice acting while dreaming of a future filled with travel. <laughs> travel? Don't talk to me, John, about travel. And a sailboat alongside his lovely wife, Paige. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Stone to Stone, Blood to Blood, by Gwendolyn Clare, read by Jonathan Sharp. The message arrives attached to the leg of a trained bird, some native species with drab greenish-brown plumage. I untie the data chip, impressed with Santiago's ingenuity. Transmissions can be intercepted and decrypted, but who would think twice about a bird landing on a windowsill? No one suspects technology from some bygone century. Is that it? Dewey says behind me, and I turn. He's tense. I can see it in the line of his shoulders, though he does his best to hide behind a cavalier facade. I hand the data chip to him. I can't risk reading it myself. My neurologic use is monitored. His, of course, is not. He lifts his black hair off the back of his neck with one hand and inserts the data chip into the neurologic slot. He's been letting his hair grow out these past few weeks. Watching him, I worry reflexively that the regent will disapprove, as if what she thinks still matters. I run a hand over my own black hair, kept military short, according to regulations of my status, and wonder what I should do with it now. Dewey sees the gesture and grins. You worry too much, brother. I don't worry enough, I say. A dereliction of duty. His eyes glaze over as he begins mentally sorting through the data. I find some comfort in his bravado, not because I need him to be the strong one, but because covering his fear with daring do is so perfectly characteristic of him. 
He is still my Dewey. We'll soon find out exactly how far I can go to keep him that way. Simrock, Dewey swears, coming out of the reading trance. Santiago scheduled the raid for tonight. We won't have any time for a practice run. I shrug. To leave without testing my ability to leave is risky, but to delay would also be risky. We have only five days left before the ceremony, before the regent destroys him, and his escape will only become more difficult as the final hour approaches. Every possible plan has strengths going hand in hand with weaknesses. Dewey fumbles at the back of his neck, removing the data chip with nervous fingers. Will you... will you be okay defying the regent? I look at him steadily. My imperative binds me to you, not her. I don't think it occurred to her that you might disobey. He flinches when I mention the imperative. He hates it. Mine specifically, but also the general concept of neuro-reprogramming. Leaving will put me in danger. Can you do that? In a sense, leaving will also protect you. There's enough vagueness and plasticity to the imperative. I can work around it. His lips pinch tight, as if it pains him to discuss my programming so openly. Under normal circumstances, we avoid the topic, but these are not normal circumstances. You need to be sure you can follow through. I am, I say. I can convince myself to do anything for you. The regent gave me to Dewey as a present. He was nine, and I was ten when we met. Looking back, it was perhaps the only definite show of kindness I have ever witnessed the regent perform. At the time, of course, I had a somewhat different perspective. I was fresh from the neurologic installation lab, still reeling from the thorough memory wipe, and the last thing on my mind was observing the interaction of Dewey and his much older half-sister, Regent Junmei of Maseroth III. What I remember best is how she referred to me as if I weren't in the room, as if I were a toy instead of a person standing there. I have a few earlier memories, but none so sharp as this one. Then Dewey stepped close, and the floor seemed to shift under my feet, as if the whole world were forcibly reorienting me. I felt a pressure behind my eyes, and I knew with the sudden, precise certainty of a programmed imperative that I must keep this boy safe. And more than that... I must make him happy. Dewey stared at me, his dark, almond-shaped eyes wide with curiosity, and I had to hold myself stiff to keep from backing away. Hi, he said, and held his palm out in the high-class gesture of greeting. My own hand automatically reached out and laid itself atop his, the imperative commanding my body to respond too fast for me to belay the order. I stared at the back of my knuckles, willing my fingers to twitch then slowly pulled my hand away. And still I felt the pressure behind my eyes, telling me I wanted nothing more than to protect him and to please him. Simrock, how I hated Dewey then. I crouched down and pressed my hand to the glass. We're in the ballroom on the bottom level of the estate, and the windows along the outer wall curved down to the floor, allowing a view of the gardens directly below. I'm not looking for the gardens, of course, but the navigation lights of the skimmers launching from the flight deck. Nothing yet, I say, glancing up. Against the darkness of the empty ballroom, Dewey, standing in a patch of moonlight, seems to glow, transformed into some unreal apparition. 
He touches his fingers to his temple, a gesture that means he's checking his neurologic for the time. But the movement does little to dispel the ghostly illusion. He says, Santiago's late. The raid should be underway already. It may take some time to produce the desired effect. Santiago's plan involves raiding a facility to the southwest of the estate, which stores activated Simrock, Moseroth III's major export to the other worlds, and thus drawing security forces away from the estate itself. The estate's guards won't mobilize until it becomes clear the storage facility is seriously jeopardized, which means Santiago and the Freeminders can't bluff the attack. Anything less than a coordinated assault and the reinforcements won't leave their posts at the estate long enough to reinforce, or long enough for Dewey to escape. This has to work, Dewey says, the words coming out in a barely audible hiss. There's no need for us to stay quiet in here. The ballroom walls were soundproofed, but I think he doesn't want me to know how scared he is. Scared of the regent and what she plans to do to his mind in five days. Something inside me tightens at the desperation in his tone, though my muscles remain relaxed and ready, as always. My body is not in the habit of betraying how I feel. A dark shape drops into view, silhouetted against the moonlit gardens below. It hovers for a moment, tacking clockwise, and the forward and rear nav lights flick on like stars revealed in a sudden parting of clouds. It darts off a mere second before the next skimmer drops down from the flight deck to take its place. This process repeats half a dozen times until the reinforcements are deployed. Gone, I say, rising to my feet. It's time. We'd left our bags by the door and now retrieve them. I shoulder mine and my palm itches to reach out for the other one too. But Dewey is already lifting it. He's become insistent lately about carrying his share. Never mind that I'm strong enough for it all. If I try to reach for it, he'll shake me off and say, It's the principle of the thing, brother. So I let him keep the bag. We take the servant's lift up to the kitchens, cross over the central hub where the estate's anti-grab engine resides, then down again on the east side. It's late and most of the staff are asleep, so no one sees us. Nonetheless, as we slip through the light-dimmed hallways, a wave of fear overtakes me. I'm not often afraid, but the thought that, after all my assurances, the imperative might stop me is terrifying. Dewey would hesitate to go on alone, and this would cost him precious minutes, and the guards would catch him. Dewey's in the lead, his soft-soled shoes shuffling quietly on the bare floor. We both know the way, but he's used to leading. Fang! Someone shouts behind us. I spin around at the sound of my name. It's Hata, one of the regent's personal guards, and thus one of the few security staff who must remain at the estate no matter how dire the situation becomes with the Free Minor Rebellion. Instinctively, I step away from Dewey, drawing Hata's attention with me. What are you doing here, he says his surprise momentarily making him forget decorum. I pull myself up straight. Master Dewey wishes to go flying. Given our proximity to the flight deck, any other explanation would be an obvious falsehood. Stiffly, he replies, The young master is not permitted to fly without sufficient escort. I will escort him, of course. We both freeze, staring each other down. He narrows his eyes with suspicion the expression accentuating his epicanthic folds. Hata knows I know that I do not count as sufficient escort beyond the bounds of the estate. How much else can he deduce? Will he guess the depths of my treason? We reach for our guns at the same instant, but his imperative is confused. Shooting the master's personal guard feels dangerously akin to attacking the master himself, and it slows him down. I, however, 
have been coaching myself against the possibility of confronting other guards, so my imperative feels clear. I shoot him in the shoulder and the knee. He stumbles but refuses to go down, still trying to aim at me with his wounded arm. I'm sorry, I say, and shoot him in the head. I'm not, actually. Not yet. With the imperative singing behind my eyes, I am incapable of hesitation or regret. The neurologic technicians didn't just give me the perfect aim of a guard, but the willingness to use it, too. I'm more than to later, when I come back to myself. For now, I must do whatever is necessary to get Dewey out. The estate guards were the ones who taught me the complex etiquette of my station. The technicians hadn't made a child guard on Moseroth III in more than a century, so some subtleties had been lost. In the guards' mind, I think I was more of a curiosity to be argued over than I was a child. In any case, I quickly learned I was allowed to stand by Dewey's chair while he ate, but never be seen eating with him. On the second evening of my guardhood, he sat down to a formal dinner with the regent, and I stood uncomfortably beside him my too keen sense of smell reporting all the delights I could not partake of. Lemongrass soup, braised duck, saffron rice, pickled tulfa root. My empty stomach churned. Throughout the meal, Dewey kept stealing glances at me. Finally, he said, Don't you want some food? I didn't know why this occurred to him. He was accustomed to servants standing by while he ate. My eyes flicked involuntarily to the other side of the long table, where the regent sat. She seemed absorbed in some document displayed on the table screen beside her plate, her razor-cut dark hair curtaining her downturned face. But I didn't dare break the rules in her presence. I was expected to say, No, young master. And so that is what I said. When they finished the meal, I was excused along with the serving staff to take my dinner in the servants' mess hall. Later that night, Dewey's nursemaid pinged my neurologic to inform me my presence was required. I hurried, but only because it was easier than fighting the imperative. The nursemaid opened the door to Dewey's chambers for me, as if I were a guest instead of staff. Dewey seemed to have been waiting impatiently, which made me nervous. None of my etiquette training had prepared me for this. It's nearly bedtime, young master. Don't play too long, the nursemaid chided, though I wasn't sure whether the warning was meant more for him or for me. Come on, he said, and grabbed my hand as if it were nothing for a lowly guard to touch the regent's brother. I was too shocked by the contact to know what to do. Pulling my hand away could only worsen the situation, so I let him hold it. One of the sofas in his sitting room had been overturned and stripped of its cushions and pillows. The separate parts were rearranged to form a fort. Dewey wriggled through a dark entrance, and I ducked in after him. I saved this for you, he said, and produced a crumpled dinner napkin. Carefully, he pulled back the corners to reveal round chocolate truffle, slightly mushed, stolen from that evening's dessert course. It got a little melty in my pocket. Sorry. I stared at the offering in his hands, and at his oddly hopeful expression. He didn't know how that single chocolate was worth two months' food to a family like mine. He also didn't know the missing napkin, genuine imported cotton grown from a plant not synthed in a lab, might cost someone in the laundry room her job. He was simply trying to be kind. My heart felt as if it were constricting in my chest. He had everything in the world except the one thing he needed. Someone to share it with. I ate the chocolate. Later, I would chastise myself for it. He was alone, but fantastically wealthy. I was equally alone and had nothing. 
I didn't owe him any pity, and I certainly would not let myself be bought with table scraps. But the next day, it wasn't chocolate. It was playing hide-and-seek in the private walled gardens below the Regent's estate. I remembered the game, though not who I'd played it with before. It was the only game I remembered how to play, in fact, and as a son of a regent, he'd only been taught strategy games. He put away his wakey set and led the way down to the gardens, saying we could try my game today and his game tomorrow. I rush up to the flight deck entrance, Dewey hanging back a few paces. The security checkpoint wirelessly recognizes my neurologic ID, and the doors unlock and hiss open for us. I duck my head in to check for guards, but the deck is clear, so I wave Dewey forward. The flight deck has two long walkways on either side of a wide opening in the floor, through which we can glimpse the moonlit gardens below the estate. The skimmers are lined up between the walkway and the gap, lashed to a section of deck that slants down toward the open air. Many of the skimmer attachments stand empty, thanks to Santiago's plan, though enough skimmers remain for us to choose from. I select the smallest one, a fast little two-seater that will be hard to spot in the sky, especially at night. Dewey hands his pack to me and climbs into the forward seat. You haven't flown this model before, I point out. How hard can it be, he says, running through the pre-flight checks. Besides, I won't be any use shooting down pursuers. This is a fair point, and we can't afford the time for hesitation, so I climb into the rear seat. I stuff the packs down into a footwell and swivel the seat to face forward. Dewey doesn't need to ask me if I'm ready. We've flown together enough to know each other's patterns and movements. He releases the wheel catch and we roll forward to the edge. With a sickening lurch, we drop through the opening and free fall for a couple of seconds before the anti-grav engine catches us, buoying the skimmer in the air. I realize my breath has caught in my throat and force myself to exhale. I hold out my hands expecting them to betray me but the imperative doesn't give me so much as a whisper of a command. Dewey is free, and I feel no compulsion to stop him. As we hover below the estate, Dewey tacks the skimmer around, then he expertly hops it forward onto the Simrock road line leading northeast. Activated Simrock repels other Simrock with a force analogous to magnetism that was actually a product of quantum entanglement, so the Simrock in our engine lets us skate above the road line, flying without wings. In a well-calibrated skimmer, Anti-grav feels like nothing. So smooth you only know you're moving when your eyes are open. But now isn't the time to close my eyes and enjoy it. I keep my gaze locked on the estate, the massive structure hovering ostentatiously over its bed of simrock buried beneath the gardens. It occurs to me, for the first time, that a floating fortress is perhaps a bit crass, too large a waste of valuable resources, too flamboyant a show of power. It was our home, and so we accepted its existence as a matter of course. But seeing it for the last time somehow strips away the veneer of familiarity, and I can finally view it objectively. When the estate fades to an indiscernible smudge behind us, I switch to distance vision, and the structure blooms back into magnified detail. Yes, it really looks absurd. What a strange life we led there. Movement to the southwest, and my ruminations are cut short. A cluster of skimmers converge on the estate, their nav lights glowing like a swarm of fireflies as they hover below the building raising into the flight deck one at a time. Simrock, I curse. They've returned earlier than Santiago projected. Perhaps I should have taken the time to hide Hada's body. They know something's gone wrong as soon as they enter the hallway, and it won't take them long after that to figure out what happened. They'll be after us soon. I guess I'll have to take this bird off-road then, Dewey says over his shoulder. 
For his own safety, Dewey is strictly forbidden from off-roading, which means we've only ever tried it once. The imperative clenches reflexively at the thought of danger, and I must pry its fingers off my psyche before I say, Yes, I see no alternative. Dewey slows the skimmer and dips the nose down to lower our altitude until we're skimming a mere meter off the ground. We keep following the unnaturally neat and straight mound of earth where the Simrock road line is buried, even when it passes between the trunks of a copse of trees. I barely recognize the place. The copse is thick with brambles growing right up to the road line. They're an invasive species seated deliberately to deter Dewey from returning. Here it is, Dewey says, pulling a skimmer to a standstill. He casts a grin over his shoulder at me. Don't you remember, brother? Hata taught him how to fly when he was 13. I already knew how, of course. It was one of the aptitudes programmed into my neurologic. But Dewey insisted he wanted to learn for himself. The regent did not entirely approve of him studying such a plebeian task, which made everyone nervous about it but she did not forbid his lessons. Dewey took to skimming as if he'd been a pilot in his past life, and I think he enjoyed it twice as much because it displeased his sister. On one particular outing, Dewey and I were in the lead, Hata and another guard following in a second skimmer. We were supposed to be riding to the east road line, but Dewey angled low between the trees and made a sharp turn into a connector that took us to the northeast line. I glanced behind us, apprehensive. I think we've lost the escort, young master. Excellent, Dewey proclaimed, as if this were his intended result. I recalled how he'd refused to let Hata ride with us, even though our skimmer was a four-seater. Maybe he had planned this from the start. My stomach felt like I'd swallowed a black hole. We raced at top speed over an open field, then decelerated to squeeze into another copse of trees. Somewhere deep in the mottled shade, Dewey slowed the skimmer to a hover, lowered it to the ground, and cut the antigrav. We dropped the last few centimeters to land with a thunk on the road line ridge. Come on, Dewey said, climbing out of the skimmer, and I had no choice but to follow him. We scrambled down the ridge, over a fallen tree trunk and through a soft knee-high ferns that filled the understory. Dewey led us straight to a rock outcropping, as if he had a map loaded in his neurologic. As I came up behind him, I realized my initial thought was wrong. He wasn't following a map. He was following the feel of the Simrock vein the way a bird feels magnetic north. Where the vein was exposed, the Simrock looked a sort of milky blue color, near translucent, reminding me of a vid Dewey had watched about the Arctic ice caves. But the Simrock felt warm to the touch, its freshly chipped edges sharp as glass. And of course, there was the not-so-small matter of what it could do. What I knew of Simrock, I knew only from overhearing Dewey's studies. It was formed from sedimentary deposits of biotic origin. Moseroth had a native species of microorganism that grew symbiotically inside living animals and degrades their corpses when they die, and the resultant deposits could become lithified into Simrock. Why the symbionts produced the necessary conditions for macroscopic quantum entanglement was still a matter of scholarly debate. Before that day, Simrock had been a theoretical concept like gravity or evolution, not something real, something I could touch. Dewey placed his hand against the Simrock vein and closed his eyes. I had no idea what to expect. Only the Regency family had the correct genetic markers for supporting the symbiotes, and I had never seen Dewey use them before. I'd heard that all it took was will. Will to control the symbiotes inside his body, the symbiotes to control the Simrock. 
but the regent was the one who activated all the Simrock Moseroth exported, and she would be highly displeased if she knew what Dewey was doing now. There, Dewey said after a minute, opening his eyes. It's activated. I stared at the Simrock dubiously. Nothing seemed to have happened. It looks the same. Well, it isn't, he said, grinning. Finally, something I can do they can't just upload to your neurologic, eh, Fang? As you say, young master. It'll hold up the antigrav engine now. Let's go. It will what, I said. But Dewey was already racing back to the skimmer, and I had to hurry to catch up with him. He climbed back into the pilot seat before I had a chance to stop him, before I had even determined whether I should be trying to stop him by force. I climbed in beside him, certain that I should, at the very least, stay close, but the imperative was giving me muddled instructions. On the one hand, I was supposed to protect him at all costs, but on the other, I was supposed to make him happy, not ruin his fun. I realized, in a sudden moment of clarity, that I had to choose which aspect of my imperative to obey, that I could choose, and if I could work against part of the imperative in service of fulfilling another part... Wasn't it possible I could learn to work against it entirely? Dewey hopped the skimmer forward into the Simrock vein, and the thought escaped me as if carried away on the breeze. The danger of what we were doing hit me in the chest, squeezing the air from my lungs like a well-placed punch, and my vision tunneled from the strength of the imperative pounding in my skull. But I gritted my teeth and wrote it out, focusing on the sound of Dewey's laugh as he wove the skimmer back and forth, following the vein. Now this is adventure, Dewey crowed to the wind. The Simrock vein dipped under a mossy hill and vanished from sight, so we had to navigate using only the symbiote's ability to sense it. Perhaps you should decelerate, young master. Relax, I can feel right where we need to go. But I can't, I thought. You're exposing yourself to unnecessary risk, I said, parroting the older guards. And having way more fun than boring old Hata would ever let us have, he retorted. We're free! Enjoy it, brother! That was the first time he ever used the honorific, and I assumed it was a jest. He couldn't possibly mean it, of course, because he knew about my programming. He knew I had no choice about how I fell for him. Even if I behaved as a brother should, it wasn't real. There could be no bond of friendship between us, and it was my fault. And the thought made me want to weep. To be trapped like this, shadowing but never truly close to him, was indefinitely worse than being alone. Dry-eyed... I swore that day to master the imperative. Dewey is flying the skimmer, the wind lifting his hair away from his face. We're two days out from the estate following a broad vein of Simrock northward, and the tension in his body is finally easing away. Even from behind, I can tell he's smiling into the wind, not his showy, manic grin, but the sort of smile that isn't for anyone else's benefit. Seeing him relax, I feel as if a weight has been lifted from my chest. Only three days left until the ceremony. The regent will be furious at Dewey's absence. It has been a tradition for almost five centuries that every member of their lineage swears fealty to the regency on his seventeenth birthday, and accepts an imperative to prove his sincerity. The Regency imperative is designed to make them loyal to the continued prosperity of the world, and to make them good leaders by some antiquated definition of good. In reality, it seems to drive them slightly mad. Too rational, too calculating, under-influenced by emotion and compassion. But of course, every adult who has the Regency imperative sees the logic of forcing it on the younger generations. 
Dewey swivels in his seat a little so he can talk to me over his shoulder. There's a reason we never went off-roading after the first time, you know. She threatened to send you down to the neurologic lab for a memory wipe if you ever let me do something so dangerous again. I hadn't known, but it is the sort of threat that never comes as a surprise when wielded by the regent. A direct and heartless tactic from a direct and heartless woman. I say, and here I thought it was because you developed a sense of your own mortality. Foolish me. I must admit I find it a little disconcerting that he's not looking where we're going, even though I know he's been steering by feel instead of sight this whole time. At least his hand is steady on the yoke. He grins. Are you joking? Off-roading is practically the only thing I can do that you can't. I was dying to rub it in some more. But I couldn't risk it. His smile fades. Almost too quiet to hear of the wind, he adds. It's still a risk. I shrug. What would be the point of my remembering anything if she forces the Regency imperative on you? It's not as if you'd care one way or the other. Not after the ceremony. Just because I wouldn't... <gasps> he gasps in mid-sentence, and I catch a glimpse of the whites of his eyes before he snaps his head around to face the controls. He yanks hard at the yoke, and the flight harness cuts into my shoulders as we decelerate. We're still moving when the anti-grav engine sputters and goes quiet. My stomach lurches with a sensation of freefall. Simrock, Dewey swears, frantically working the stabilizers to keep us upright as we angle toward the ground. I yank up on the emergency lever, and the roll cage springs closed over the passenger compartment. We hit the ground at too sharp an angle and roll end over end, the leaf-dappled sky and dark earth alternating in dizzying succession. We finally slide to a stop upside down, one corner of the roll cage bent inward, so we hang at an odd angle. Well, I say. The flight straps are cutting into my shoulders uncomfortably. So that was the end of the Simrock vein, I take it. Dewey coughs. The air full of dust kicked up during our inelegant landing. I may have somewhat overestimated my own reaction time, I admit. Hmm, somewhat, I agree. I can't get this thing off, he complains, fiddling with his flight hardness. There's an audible click, and the harness dumps him unceremoniously on the ground. He squirms in the confines of the roll cage, struggling to reorient into a crouch. Ow! Are you injured? I brace my feet against the sides of the footwell and put one hand on the ground below my head before releasing my own harness. Show off, he grumbles as I let myself down carefully. No, I'm fine, just bruises. We have to climb out between the bars of the roll cage. Dewey's shorter and slimmer than I, and he shimmies through without much trouble. But I have to exhale to squeeze between, and for a moment I fear I'm stuck. Dewey laughs but grabs my hands to pull me free. Then there's nothing to do but retrieve our packs and deal with what's in front of us. We may be safely away from any road lines, but traveling by foot is slow. The regent will be getting impatient for Dewey's retrieval by now. A sobering thought. At least I can consult the topo map stored in my neurologic now that we're out of range of the estate. We're close. A half day's hike to the mining road line, and we can hitch a ride into town from there. Dewey scowls. We'll be late for the rendezvous. Santiago better wait for us. He'll wait. He needs you. Dewey shakes his head, mystified, and I realize he only believes in his own value because I keep insisting upon it. He hasn't actually internalized how pivotal his ability will be for the free miners' cause. The Regency bloodline is unique among humans in its ability to support the symbiont infection. Dewey is literally the only person on the planet, aside from the Regent herself, with the proper genetics for hosting symbiotes. It makes me furious sometimes how thoroughly he's internalized the regent's view of his limited self-worth. 
I have to swallow the angry words and remind myself it's not his fault what happened to him. He'll wait, I say again with emphasis. Let's go. I came to the estate too late to meet his mother, and Dewey rarely spoke of her. Perhaps it was easier to pretend she had never existed at all. After the old regent's death, his wife was found guilty of treason and sentenced to follow him. No one would actually say that the regent Junmei hated her father's second wife for being scandalously young and pretty, and for replacing her own mother who had been rendered barren by a disease. But everywhere this was implied, in the careful ways the staff would skirt around saying it. So it seemed that Junmei first framed and then executed Dewey's mother out of spite. Dewey himself had been inoculated at birth, and the symbiont infection took root, so by law he could not be harmed. Otherwise, I suspect she would have taken care of him too. Instead, the regent found herself in the unforeseen position of needing to take care of him in the non-euphemistic sense, guardian to a much younger half-brother she never wanted. Junmei sought to control him the only way she was capable of, through fear. I do believe, even though she stayed distant and cold with him, she eventually grew to feel something, if not affection, then at least possessiveness and perhaps a grain of guilt. After all, she could have told the neurologic technicians who programmed my imperative to make me protect Dewey, and then left it at that. But she didn't. She also wanted me to fill the emotional void she'd made in his life. Why? I don't think I'll ever truly know. We hit the mining road line about an hour before dark. I almost suggest we keep going on foot, follow the road line into town, but Dewey's limping slightly, so we settle down to wait. I suspect he has impressive blisters, his feet unused to sustained travel. He shrugs out of his pack and rolls his shoulders, takes a long drink from his water bottle and puts a hand on his shoe as if to remove it. Don't, I say. If your foot swells, you'll never get it back on. Brother, if you're worried about us looking presentable for Santiago, I'm afraid that skimmer has flown, he says grumpily. But he leaves the shoe on. I wasn't worried about the meeting until he said that. I was too preoccupied with escaping our enemies to worry about our new allies. But now there's time enough to consider both. Our arrangement with the free miners is anything but simple. Too much being offered on both sides, and the stakes too high. But I thought they were my best chance to get Dewey to safety. Wonder if I'll live to regret that decision. It's not long before a large flatbed skimmer loaded with miners comes flying down the road line. We get out of the way just in case, but it pulls to a stop and hovers down to let us on. One of the miners gives Dewey a hand up, and I'm right behind him. And we're off to meet Santiago. Turns out there's no need to worry about our appearance. Next to the miners, we look downright clean. They eye our fine tailored clothing, somewhat abused from the skimmer crash, but there's more curiosity than hostility in their faces. Still, I huddle near Dewey, outwardly relaxed but ready to move at the slightest hint of danger. The ride takes half an hour or so, and we get off at the town square stop, along with most of the miners. There's some sort of gathering going on, and from the snippets of conversation as we walk by, I can tell it has something to do with the free miners establishing a more permanent presence in town. Opinions seem mixed on whether or not this is a good thing, I walk close to Dewey's side in case there's trouble. Santiago is easy to spot in the crowd. 
brown hair, worn long and braided in a sea of close-cropped, black-haired Moserathi miners, and a narrow face without a hint of empathetic fold around the eyes. As he breaks off from a group and heads toward us, I notice he's wearing a gray workman's coverall, probably to put the locals at ease. It's not every year they harbor a revolutionary. Welcome, welcome, he says, shaking Dewey's hand and then mine. Friends, we live in exciting times. I think you'll find it quite fulfilling to be here with us, working towards a better future. Dewey glances at me with a slight raise of an eyebrow. On behalf of both of us, I give Santiago a dry reply. Yes, quite. So you're skeptical, that's fine, Santiago says genially. He spreads his hands, gesturing while he talks. Do you know why the Mozarothi government is called a regency? On Earth, a regent was a temporary governor who took on the responsibilities of a child monarch until he was old enough to lead. Regency implies the intent to transfer power back to the rightful parties. This was never meant to be a permanent arrangement, and certainly not a hereditary one. Yes, I'm sure you're right, Dewey says. I can tell his mind is elsewhere. Santiago looks a bit thrown, as if he is accustomed to anyone brushing off his idealistic proclamations. Well, in any case, I thought we would start with a demonstration, activate some Simrock for a few of the Freemasons to see. When can we see the doctor, Dewey demands. Part of the deal with Santiago is he provides access to a former neurotech who can remove my imperative. There will be plenty of time for that, says Santiago. She's been sympathetic to the revolution for years. It's not as if she's going to run off. We agreed to meet here because the doctor lives here. That was the deal. We both go free, and then we help you. I'm not going to touch an ounce of Simrock for the free miners until Feng sees her. Santiago scowls, and I feel my muscles tense. He's kept his word so far, but we don't have the luxury of being generous with our trust. He says, I lost good men and women in that raid just to get you out. I don't think a show of good faith is too much to ask after that. No, Dewey says, hands clenching into fists. We see the doctor first. Much to my relief, Santiago gives in. Dewey can become as immovable as stone when he puts his mind to something, and he borrows a skimmer to take us. Santiago's doctor runs a small clinic in what passes for the nice part of town. We let ourselves through the unlocked front door and into the waiting room full of comfortable chairs. A moment later, a woman in a white doctor's uniform comes in and introduces herself as Dr. An Wang. She's thin, with gray streaks in her hair and bony, dexterous hands. I frown. The doctor looks vaguely familiar, but I can't place her. Then an image flashes across my memory. As old and fuzzy as a corrupted data stream, she walked by my medical bay and snuck a glance at me. But when she saw I was conscious, she turned away. You were one of my technicians when I was wiped. Her eyes widened and she leans away, as if words were a slap. Yes, I was. Dewey steps forward anxiously, hands nodding together. That doesn't matter, does it? No, I say too quickly. I take a breath and regain control, then add, The past is past. I suppose you should know it was you, the doctor tells me. Why I left, I mean. I left because of what we did to you. When I joined the Neurologic Institute, I didn't think... They hadn't done a child in a 130 years. I thought we'd become civilized, she sighs. If you're ready, we can proceed into the imaging room. Dewey moves to follow me inside, but the doctor gives him a stern look. Just the patient, please, she says. But, he starts to protest. It's okay, brother. I squeeze his shoulder. 
He stares at me, as if searching my face for something, then finally acquiesces. Fine, I'll wait here. Anwan closes the door between us and waves me over to a reclining chair. I lay down, anxious but perfectly capable of hiding it. She lowers some sort of diagnostic contraption over my skull. The imager will let me explore a 3D representation of your neural pathways non-invasively. It will help me determine what kinds of treatment you might be a candidate for. I don't know how long I lie there. Anwang tries to keep me updated about what she's doing, but it involves a lot of unfamiliar technical jargon, and I don't follow her. When she's finally done, she motions for me to climb out and sit with her in a pair of regular chairs tucked off to one side of the room. I'm afraid I don't have good news, she says grimly. Your imperative is too deeply interconnected with healthy brain function. As your brain developed, it looks as if you used the imperative as a foundation upon which to build real neural pathways. I can't shut down the imperative without damaging the part of you that's... You! So there's nothing to be done? She shrugs helplessly. If I shut off the imperative, it could result in frequent seizures as your brain tries to access the dysfunctional pathways. If I surgically remove the whole neurologic, you wouldn't have any physical side effects, but, well, more of you would be gone. You were programmed so young, it's hard to know what mental faculties would be affected. You might have to relearn very basic skills like walking or reading. In your case, I can't recommend treatment. I'm sorry. No, don't be. It's fine. On some level, I think I already knew it was too deeply wound inside my mind to ever be pulled apart again. I had to fully accept it in order to master it. And now it's a part of me. It's just... Do you think we can tell everyone it worked? That you turned it off? Anwang gives me a quizzical look, but says, If that's what you want... I nod. That's what I want. Dude would take it too hard to come all this way only to fail. I'm not sure I see it as a failure. This is simply the way the world is. But Dewey would. I go out into the waiting room and Dewey stands as I approach. All done, I say. He won't look me in the eye and for a moment it baffles me, but then I understand. Oh, you thought turning it off would change things for us? I hoped it would. He finally looks up, his expression pained. You should be free of me. That was never what I wanted. Free of it, maybe, I say, waving my hand at my skull. But not free of you. Brothers forever, remember? He visibly relaxes, the tension leeching out of his body, throws his arms around me in a quick embrace, then backs away, embarrassed. I thought I was going to lose you. Never. When Dewey was ten and a half, he overheard one of the staff referring to me as his robot toy and he later demanded I explain to him why. I was torn. On the one hand, I had picked up on the fact that he is not supposed to know about my imperative, but I also sensed that not knowing made him feel like the butt of a cruel joke. So I told him. He got very angry with me, as if it were some kind of betrayal. I remember feeling bewildered at how upset he was. After all, it wasn't as if I told him that he had an imperative in his brain. Shouldn't I have been the one who was mad? He refused to see me for a whole day until his nursemaid explained I would be punished for displeasing him if he didn't forgive me. With my visit to the doctor over and a new day dawning, Santiago is eager to give us a tour of his operation. 
In the back room of a pub, he hands Dewey a small chunk of stolen Simrock, and Dewey demonstrates his ability for a half-dozen of Santiago's lieutenants, as he calls them. Then we follow him to a warehouse where he stocks up supplies for the revolution. In the dim lighting between the stacks of crates and boxes, Santiago seems to wax sentimental. When I came here as a child, I thought all the Mozarathi were rich since everyone used Simrock technology. His parents were political refugees from the Ben-Jakan system. I know because Dewey looked up his file when we first contacted the free miners. It took me a while to understand that each world has a unique relationship to technology. These, for example. He lifts the lid on one crate, revealing three long rifles nestled snugly next to each other in their hard foam packaging. I lean in for a closer look. The design appears modern but unfamiliar. Pulse weapon, Santiago says, answering my unasked question. They're standard issue off-world, but not much use on Moseroth 3. Too volatile to use around so much Simrock. But we can exploit their design defects to turn them into explosive devices. I glance up at him, surprised, though I suppose I shouldn't be. It's Santiago's ingenuity at work again. He shows us the stashes of stolen Simrock, stockpiles of equipment, parts for building old-fashioned vehicles that don't rely on anti-grav technology. One end of the warehouse is divided into two stories, and we go up to the second floor to the single large room that makes up his local headquarters. One side of the room hosts a bank of communications and monitoring equipment, and an enormous table screen dominates the center of the room. Santiago activates it with a touch, calling up a map of Moseroth three and an overlay of stratagems in red. The forces loyal to the Regency are effective but small. We can't hope to beat them in a fair fight, but we can overwhelm them, generate enough chaos so they must spread their forces too thin. We spent the rest of the afternoon in this vein, discussing strategy and meeting revolutionaries. That night, Dewey shakes me awake, one finger pressed to his lips. We slip out of the guest house and pass the sentry Santiago posted outside to protect his investment in us. Dewey leads me through the dark streets back to the warehouse and up to the headquarters. Now that we're free, we have to plan our next move, he explains in a hushed voice. Aren't we staying with the free miners? The moon is visible through a broad skylight that runs the length of the warehouse, but the glass directly above us is clouded with dirt so I turn on the lights for Dewey's sake. For now, he agrees, walking over the table screen, but we should have a backup plan, in case they prove to be less worthy of our trust than we might hope. He calls up the map and I join him at the edge of the table, looking down at the web of road lines and towns laid out before us. If we're to plan an escape route, it'll depend on whether or not we can get our hands on a skimmer, and if so, which model. Or one of Santiago's off-road vehicles, if any of them have been assembled yet, Dewey adds. Do you think? I start to say, but never get the chance to finish the sentence. We are interrupted by shouts and crashes, and a rain of shattered glass falling on us from above. Mozarathi have a complicated relationship with Simrock. It's the foundation of our economic system, the source of our wealth and comfort, the linchpin of our technology. But our dependency on Simrock binds us to the Regency government. Simrock gives us power and freedom, and in the same stroke takes it away. Likewise, the word Simrock is an all-purpose exclamation, blessing, prayer, and curse all wrapped up in two syllables. How typical of, of the Mozarathi way of thinking, the assumption that all good fortune comes helplessly entangled with unwanted baggage, 
and the reciprocal belief that even the worst misfortune has a speck of hope attached, like a tenacious parasite to its side. The scales may tip towards bad or good for a while, but it's a trivial and temporary distinction. They are both ever-present. Sometimes I wonder what it must be like to live in a world of clear delineations, of winnable battles. I think Santiago sees the rebellion with the off-worlder perspective of his parents, as if the conflict is concrete and finite, as if one side will attain a definitive victory. But we are Mozarathi. We cannot win without losing. This has been my experience, anyway. I've never been able to tease apart the good from bad in life. We duck and cover our faces as the skylight cascades down upon us in thousands of pieces. My senses kick into high gear, adrenaline hot in my veins, and I reach for Dewey's arm, knowing only that we have to get out of here. But there's no time. Ropes fall through the gaping hole in the ceiling, and a half-squadron of Regency guards zip down to the floor. They're decked out in gray ceramic body armor and faceplates, and each one is carrying a rifle. I drag Dewey towards the stairs, but there's another pair of guards silently ascending, and we're forced back. One of the guards behind us speaks into a comm. Target acquired. We're clear for the Regent. I share a glance with Dewey, and though neither of us say it, we're both thinking, She came in person? I can hear her enter the warehouse, her heels clicking on the concrete floor. The sound echoes. It seems to take her forever to cross the length of the building and climb the stairs. We're both breathing fast, even though there's nowhere for us to run. The regent arrives with another pair of guards as escort. She looks immaculate in a royal blue business wear, her black hair slicked back in a tight bun. Dewey backs against the nearest wall, not so much for tactical advantage as out of sheer lizard brain terror. And since my hand is still on his arm, I go with him. Better face this together. Oddly, the regent turns her sharp gaze on me first, as if Dewey weren't present. I cannot recall her ever addressing me directly before. Guardsman Feng, you have allowed your charge too broad a sense of freedom. It is time to escort him home. That is an order. I brace for the imperative to respond. It gives a single, reflexive kick the old familiar pressure behind my eyes. But betraying Dewey would not make him happy, would not make him safe, and I focus on this truth to quell the sensation. I accepted my imperative. I trained it instead of allowing it to train me. And now this program in my brain, this artificial seed of our real friendship, can no longer be used against us. Steadily, I say, I'm afraid I don't take orders anymore, Regent. We go where we wish to go. I gave you everything, she says, her tone turning cold as ice and sharp as glass. Did you know your father, a cripple with too many mouths to feed, practically begged them to take you away? He traded you away for a comfortable pension. I gave you a livelihood, a purpose. You were selected over other candidates to receive this honor. And how do you repay me? This is more than I can remember of my father. Crippled? Injured in the mines? And is it true he sold me to the Regency Guard of his own free will? I know I should feel something, but I don't have the necessary emotional triggers. That part of me was hollowed out eight years ago when they wiped my memory. Father has been reduced to an academic term. Brother is the only word that counts for anything now. I lift my chin. If I ever had any debts to you, Regent, I have paid them and then some. Do we? she says, smoothly switching her tactic. He has poisoned you against me. Can't you see this? No, 
You did a perfectly adequate job of that all on your own, sister. He spat out the last word as if it were a curse. That's enough, Dewey. You will cease this childish show of defiance at once. She snaps, her patience gone. It's time to grow up. Gather your things. We're going back to the estate now for the ceremony. Her casual dismissal of him, her assumption that he'll bend under her manipulations, sends black hatred coursing through my veins. A memory flashes through my mind of ten-year-old Dewey trying to hide the fact that he'd been crying so she wouldn't castigate him for being weak. You're a monster, I say, the words spilling out. And the most awful part is you're the only one on the planet who doesn't know it. Her mouth twists, furious. Her voice turns to ice. Drop him! In one swift motion, all the guards lift their guns from low ready to aim at me. No! Dewey yells, getting in the way, clinging to me. Most of the guards aim away, but only most. A single bullet goes through both of us. Dewey was almost sixteen when the direness of his situation struck him. There had been a screen in his chamber always displaying a portrait of his dead parents, and he tore it from the wall. He smashed it against the floor over and over again until flecks of circuitry scattered across the carpet like stars in a wine-red sky. How could they do this to me? Have a kid just so he can be enslaved to their obsolete programming? What kind of legacy is that? His chest was heaving from exertion and anger and he looked as if he were thinking of stomping on the wreckage for good measure. You know I'll stand by you, no matter what you become. I meant it as a comfort, but it made him angry. What? Do you want me to be like you? Slave to the implant? Will that finally satisfy you? He reached out his hands to shove me, and I let him, his push knocking me back two steps. I stared at him, baffled. What did he mean, satisfy? Ugh! He threw up his hands. Nothing ever phases you. Quietly, I said. Of course it does, but I'm not supposed to show it. His anger leached away, and he sank down onto a settee, head in hands. When he spoke, the muffled words leaked between his fingers. I'm sorry. I just don't know what to do. If... If there was a chance to stay yourself, would you take it? I asked tentatively. No matter what the cost... Dewey dropped his hands from his face and gave me a sharp look. Anything. He said the word like an oath. I would do anything. Just tell me what to do. I sat beside him, bracing myself to voice thoughts that couldn't ever be unsaid. Thoughts of treason. I've heard the other guards speak of a rebel group. They call themselves the Free Miners. Their mission is to bring down the Regency. Dewey laughed bitterly. Well, they're certainly not going to help me, then. Not at first. We'll have to leak them intel, earn their trust, but we have time. We have a whole year, and in the end, you have the one thing they need the most. His eyes widened. The symbionts. Oh, Simrock, this could actually work, Feng. So, you want me to initiate contact, then? I fetched a tablet and paged through Dewey's calendar, cross-checking it against areas of recent free miner activity. Perhaps at the festival in New Hinshu next month. Yeah, it'll have to be sometime we can sneak away from the guards. There'll be crowds at the festival. We need to make a plan. I nodded, still looking at the tablet. As you wish, young master. You can't call me that anymore, brother. It wasn't the words so much as the painted note in his voice that made me look up. Not if we're going to do this together. 
I blinked at him, for a moment stunned. You're right, I said, and held out my palm in the same gesture he'd greeted me with all those years ago. He laid his palm on mine, accepting me as an equal, and I said, Brothers, then. Brothers forever. I wake in the hospital, but Dewey is dead. He did save me, after all, though not in the way he meant to. When the bullet passed first through him, then through me, the infection transferred blood to blood. By law, not even the regent has the authority to order the execution of a symbiont host. Dewey's blood renders me untouchable, a walking, one-man sanctuary. The transfer shouldn't have been possible. The regent's family has certain genetic markers that predispose them to supporting the symbionts, but I have no genetic compatibility. The doctors theorize it may have something to do with chronic exposure. My years of proximity to Dewey's symbionts giving my body time to adjust to them, and them time to adapt to me. They tell me he died in my arms, but I imagine it was more that he slumped to the floor in a tangle. I don't remember. I have plenty of time in the hospital to regret I was not conscious for his last moments of life. His absence feels unreal. I know he is dead, yet I keep expecting him to walk through the door. The doctors tell me I will adjust in time, but they tiptoe through my room as if I were as fragile as blown glass. I think they worry the imperative will drive me insane now that the focus of its influence is gone. They don't understand that the imperative hasn't really mattered. Not for a long time now. Not between us. I wish I could tell my younger self, all of this is real, so I wouldn't have wasted so much time doubting Dewey's sincerity. But I suppose you can't truly know someone loves you enough to die for you until they do. The regent wants me remanded to her custody. The night before my release date, the free miners send an escort of two men dressed as regency guards. We walk right out the front door. The hospital staff aren't stupid. They can tell what's happening, but the costumes do them the service of plausible deniability. What do you mean disappeared, they'll say in the morning. A Regency escort picked him up last night. The free miners tell me Santiago is still alive. There's a certain irony. Here, the Regency was so focused on capturing us that the leader of the revolution slipped out of town, undetected. The free miners act as if this counts as a victory. They deliver me straight into Dr. Anwang's care. Santiago hovers, anxious to hear that I'm fit and able, but Anwang shoes him away. She prescribes more rest and runs her own set of scans and blood work. I sleep most of the day away because it's so much easier than being conscious. The next day, Anwang has results, so she and Santiago pull chairs up close and huddle at my bedside. I know this is a hard time for you to talk about this, she says, taking my hand and squeezing it, but you need to hear what I've found. It wasn't Dewey's colony that was adapting to you. The whole Regency strain has been adapting to humans for half a millennium. It's not nearly so specific anymore. Probably hasn't been for a long time. We simply didn't know because so people ever get exposed to Regency blood. I blink slowly at her. Are you saying that I'm... infectious? Not yet, she says. But when your symbiont load is mature, we might be able to infect as much as 5 or 10% of the population from your blood. Santiago's head snaps up. You think there could be that many viable hosts? She shrugs. The data are only preliminary and it will take time to do so many inoculations. 
but I think it wouldn't be unrealistic to aim for a stable 5% infection pool in the future. Santiago steeples his fingers in front of his mouth, looking humbled by the news. That would change... That would change everything. We could put an end to this whole political structure. Where before he hoped to dispose one dictator in favor of a somewhat less sociopathic replacement. Now he can eliminate the Regency's power altogether. I can almost see the thoughts and plans churning behind his wet, shining eyes. The cognitive dissonance is intense. Watching Santiago feel more hope and joy than he ever expected possible when the ashes of my own life's destruction have hardly cooled. I'm not ready to feel happy about anything yet. I can't even imagine what it might be like. I agree to cooperate with whatever they need. Dr. Anwang does more tests, takes more blood, prepares for the initial round of infection trials. I follow Santiago to political rallies and show off what I can do. He does most of the talking. I'm shaky at first, but I gradually gain some proficiency in controlling the symbionts. I tell people I will overthrow the regency to honor Dewey's memory, because he died for the cause. But the truth is, he died for me. I simply need something to do with my life now that he's gone. This will do. I'm a Moserathi. A speck of hope is as much as I can ask for. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Gwendolyn's Gwendolyn. Big, big thank you. Thank you so much for that. That's lovely. And Jonathan, what can I say? Second time up there. Brilliant. Thank you so much, sir. So that is this show. Yes. Still feeling sorry for myself, man. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. If you're wondering what's up on YouTube there, we have, or I have, the, I, I listened to William Gibson's, the, um, now which one, I can't even remember which one it is there. Now, he's, his latest new one, and I do a kind of review of that. No spoilers in it there. The Peripheral, there we go, mine went blank there. What a book. Oh, it's just like good old Gibson's kind of jacked in, cyberspace, punked up, everything. It's just fantastic. If you love all that nonsense, do you know what I mean? You'll love this. Do you know what I mean? Just a great book. Come over and read the book then. Come over and watch the video or vice versa. I don't give anything away. So, yes. Don't forget, the show is sponsored by Octagon Technologies. Thank you so much, Clive and Diane. They're now able to do hosted exchange service for solicitors and legal firms in the UK who need this criminal justice secure email. How cool is that? That's it. Don't forget, look after the show as well. You know, needs still needs donations kind of coming in to keep it going. Pop over to YouTube and I will see you maybe a bit happier. <laughs> Not so long in the face next week. Until then, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. 
You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.